Thank you. Yeah. Great to be here. I bet everybody says that. You ever had anybody show up and say, man, I really hate being here? No, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> does this elevate? Yes, it does. Maybe. Oh. No, that doesn't do it. All right, I'll just pretend I'm shorter today. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm delighted to be able to spend a little bit of time with you here on this Wednesday morning in the greatest book ever written, a compilation of many books. But 1 Peter is one of my favorites out of all of the books that we have in the Bible, so I'm delighted that you have been spending time learning it, even as I did when I was in your place, when I was your age. I had a Bible study that I went to, and we went verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this amazing letter. And the girl I eventually married, uh, she was also loving that study in First Peter, and it's still her favorite book in the Bible. First Peter is a, a book that is really written to help us learn how to live on fire for God while we are under fire in the world. Think about that. On fire for God while being under fire in the world. That's a, really, I think, what the book is all about. And that's why I thought it was great when we were singing just earlier that though sufferings may fill our lives, we are confident we are heirs with Christ. And that call to suffering is right there in First Peter chapter 2. You guys looked at it last week, I would assume, where it says there in First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, to this you have been called. And what does the this refer back to? Well, this is the suffering. It's a gracious thing when you do good and suffer for it and you endure. When you do good and you are persecuted for it, when you are uh, under fire in the world for doing good, well, this is what you've been called to. And the example that's laid out for us there at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2 is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that Christ came into the world in order to suffer. Suffering was part of God's plan for the life of Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we as Christians are called to suffer as well. That as you follow Jesus Christ, you might expect that the world will treat you in a similar manner to the way that it has treated the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the basic orientation of the true Christian to the world is, is one of opposition. Not that we are against the world in the sense that we want bad things to happen to them, but that as Jesus Christ was in the world speaking the truth in love, he was misunderstood, he was misrepresented. He was attacked for speaking the truth that convicted men of their sin because the world doesn't want to know about their sin. They don't want the light in the world. They want to put the light out. They want to try to pressure Christians to not live differently, that Christians can live just like the world around, and so the world doesn't feel bad about the way that they're living because, look, everybody's doing this. But when you see somebody that's doing good and you're the one that's doing bad, well, then you're mad at the person for doing good because it sets a contrast. It shows the darkness of what you're doing in contrast to the light of the other person. So that's the, the big idea here in this section in 1 Peter. And the application of that truth of call, 
the call to suffer righteously, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, is in the context of being subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake, as it says there, look at it in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he gives the example of human government there in that paragraph, but then he goes on and gives the example of slaves or servants being subject to their masters. And then the same command of being subject is then applied to the situation of wives in relationship to their husbands beginning in chapter 3. Now remember, when Peter wrote this, he didn't divide it up into chapters. He wasn't like, okay, uh, Sylvanus, uh, chapter 1, blah, 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 blah. All right, chapter 2, start a new section. No, it all flows together. It's a letter. So it's all just one letter. Peter didn't even say that there were verses. Uh, that's all added later just so that it's easy for us to find our place in the Bible. So chapter 3 is not really a new section here in Peter's letter. In fact, it's a participle, the, the verb there, be subject. It's not even an independent verb. It's a participle that's connecting to the previous sentence. It's picking up with that command all the way back in verse 13 to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This submission to authority is a major theme in Peter's letter. Now, as I said, the application of this truth of the submission of the Christian to human authorities is being applied now to the wife's submission, subjection to her husband. So really, we've got six verses here at the beginning of 1 Peter 3 about wives in their relationship to their husbands, and then just one verse, verse 7, on how the husband is supposed to love his wife. And that seems a little unfair, right? Why do the women get six verses telling them what they're supposed to do, and the man just gets one verse? Well, this must be because of misogyny and patriarchy. No, God is not a misogynist. The, the Bible is not trying to put down women. And here I am, a man, teaching a letter that was written by a man on how women are supposed to act in marriage. And if you go out into the world today and you do that kind of thing, if I you know, go on television and say, well, here's what the Bible has to say about how a woman is supposed to submit to her husband, that's not going to get a very warm reception in the culture that we live in today. But we have to remember that we are not to be conformed in our thinking to the world that is around us, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that this book, this is not a book that is a human book. It's not as if Peter and Paul were the ones who came up with these ideas about how a marriage is supposed to function, what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is. No, this is something that is the word of God, as Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, that the words of scripture are breathed out by God. That's the doctrine that is throughout the scripture of the inspiration and the inerrancy of the text. And so when we come and we preach what is here, we're not preaching man's ideas, but we're preaching the word of God. And, and God, he created man. He created woman. And so he knows who we are. He knows what we need. He knows how he designed us to function. Now, we can fight against that. We can try to decide, well, I think by my experience, I have better ideas. Or I think that my culture has progressed beyond this type of thing and that, that we can do things in a different way. We don't have to do it the way that the Bible says to do it. Why, why should wives submit to their husbands? 
That seems like a, a relic from a past age. And you can go against what the scripture says. But you can't go against nature without experiencing the consequences of going against nature. And this experiment that our world is, is undertaking to try to redefine manhood, to try to redefine womanhood, to try to destroy biblical gender, and to try to throw everybody together as if men and women were interchangeable and exactly the same. And if a young man decides that he's a woman, then he can play women's sports and compete against the women. This, this experiment of destroying distinctions between men and women, you, you'll see that it's not going to bear good fruit. You can choose to fight against reality, but not without consequences. And the reality is, is that God created male and female. God created men and women to be different. And so God addresses the most important relationship that men and women have with one another, that relationship of marriage here in this powerful and important text. Now, you young men that are listening in this morning on these first six verses, we will get to verse 7, but I want you to realize that even the first six verses have a lot to teach you guys, that these verses are teaching us what it looks like for a woman to suffer well in a bad marriage. And you say, well, I'll never be a woman suffering in a bad marriage. Well, that's true. But you might be a man who is suffering under a bad boss. Or you might be a man who is suffering under a bad government. And the same type of attitude, the same type of heart, the same kind of trust in God that Jesus Christ manifested just pointed out for us previously there in chapter 2, where it says that God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, he, he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. That when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to God. That attitude of trusting in God in the midst of difficult circumstances, well, that's something that every Christian needs to know how to do, because we're all going to experience that. And while the specific application of that truth here is for wives who are married to a husband who does not love the Lord and does not want them to follow the Lord, this is applicable for any authority relationship because you've got parents, you've got church leaders, you've got government leaders, you've got all kinds of authorities in your life. And I'll tell you this right up front, even before we dig into the text in detail, authorities are often wrong. Authorities are often selfish. Authorities are often corrupt. But the Bible doesn't say submit to the authorities when they're acting in your best interest. The Bible doesn't say submit to the authorities when they're making every right decision. Because if that was the case, then everyone would be their own authority. Because I get to decide when they're acting in my best interest. I get to decide when they're doing what is right and good. And if everyone does what is right in their own eyes, well, then there is no authority. And you've got anarchy. You can go back to the time in Israel's history in the book of Judges when there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges. And you go back and you read the book of Judges, and was it a time of peace and prosperity and joy and godliness? No. In a time where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, you've got war, you've got immorality, you've got all kinds of godlessness, that we don't want anarchy. God is a God of order. And God is a God who is able to bring good in your life through authorities who are imperfect. That's what this section is all about. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. By submitting himself to Pilate's authority, 
Pilate, who was not concerned about Jesus' well-being, Pilate, who was willing to sacrifice justice on the altar of his expediency for his progress of his career, was willing to put an innocent man to death in order to avoid a riot that might lead to him being deposed from his position as governor, that evil man, Jesus Christ submitted to him, and Christ said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. All authority that exists, exists by God. That's what the scripture says. All authority is established by God. And even the evil authorities are working in your life a good purpose. That is the truth that undergirds this passage in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. So let's read it. Follow along in your Bibles, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Now you guys know how to listen to this, even if you're not a married woman. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And stop there before we get to the husbands. You see the idea there? You do good and you're not afraid of anything that is frightening. In that society, the, the man, the husband, had absolute authority over his household. Women had very few rights, very little protections. That if, if your husband decided to make your life miserable in that society, nobody was going to stop him. If a husband wanted to beat his wife, if a husband wanted to divorce his wife, if a husband wanted to take legal action against his wife, there was very little that she could do. And when your life is in the power and the control of, of an ungodly person who is ruthless, you might become afraid. You might start to think, well, who's going to stand up for me? Who's going to protect me? Jesus Christ faced that same situation. He was in the power of Pilate. And those sufferings filled his life for a few days. He was confident that he was heir of the world. He was confident that God was going to rescue him from every evil deed, that he was going to experience the resurrection. And let me tell you this. If you really believe in the resurrection, that changes everything. That changes your perspective on life. Nobody can make you afraid of anything if you believe in the resurrection. Nobody can make you do anything that is against your conscience, that is against the will of God, because even if they take your life, which is the worst thing they can do, they're just getting you one step closer to the resurrection. This is what Richard Wormbrandt said to his torturers when he was arrested in Eastern Europe under the communist rule. He was taken in and he was before the jailer and he told the jailer, I'm not afraid to die because I believe in the resurrection. I'm not afraid to die because 
Though sufferings may fill my life, I believe that I am an heir with Christ. We did, he didn't just sing it. He lived it. He believed it. That was the core of his being. And Richard Wormbrandt then was answered by the jailer, and he said, oh, we're not going to kill you. We're not butchers like the Nazis. We're going to torture you for years. And Richard Wormbrandt endured that torture, and his faith endured. And he was not able to be cowed because he had Christ in his heart. That's what Peter's writing about here. Peter is writing as a man who was going to suffer martyrdom for Christ. He was going to be crucified like his Lord was crucified, except upside down instead of right side up. That God had called Peter to suffer even as he was encouraging the Christians to suffer well. So you don't have to worry about who's in charge of your life. You don't have to say, oh, I wish I had different parents. Oh, I wish I had a different government. Oh, I wish I had a different church eldership. Oh, I wish I had different authorities in my life. Then my life would be so much better. God is the one who put the authorities in your life, and he put them there for a purpose. Sometimes they bring blessing and joy into your life. Sometimes they bring suffering. And the suffering has a purpose. God says, submit to the leadership in your life. Suffer well, trusting in me. Look at what he says there about the women who are married to an ungodly husband. If any of them are disobedient to the word, is what he says there in verse 1. If some do not obey their word, there would be wives whose husbands were not Christians. Now, it's hard enough for a wife to submit to a loving Christian husband because Christian husbands can be foolish. They can make wrong decisions. They can do things that would make you nervous and say, well, you know, what, what's this going to do for our future? Because my husband's making these bad financial decisions or he's making bad decisions about the education of our children. And, and what's God going to do? How is God going to, to work in our life when my husband's making all these bad decisions? It's hard enough to be married to a Christian husband, but to a man who is deliberately stubborn against God and rebellious against God, that wife, that's a very difficult situation to be in. But God has the perfect answer. He says that you are to have a gentle and quiet spirit. The adornment that this Christian wife is supposed to put on, it's not the jewelry, not the makeup, not the hair, not the clothing. No, the adornment that is beautiful and precious in God's sight is a gentle and quiet spirit. Very precious in God's sight. What is a gentle and quiet spirit? A gentle spirit is a spirit that doesn't have to have its own way. It doesn't push and say, hey, I'm going to nag my husband until he does what I want him to do. I'm going to keep on rebelling in little ways against the authority in my life until I get the authority to give up and say, okay, I, I, I give up. My parents say, I can't control this child. Fine, have it your way. That's the opposite of a gentle spirit. A gentle spirit says, okay, mom and dad, you told me what to do. I don't like it. I would have made a different decision, but you're in charge. I don't have to have it my way. That's a gentle spirit. This is a word that is translated meekness in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. It's not an attribute just for women. Here it's a, applied to women, but this is a Christian attitude. This is a Christian heart. The not forcing your own way. And my children, bless them, they, they're always testing our limits. They're always saying, you know, how bad do mom and dad want this? And, and if, I, if I keep the pressure on, will they relent and, and, you know, give up on this and let me have my way? 
And you guys are like that too. We're all that way. That's not a Christian spirit. That doesn't come from God's spirit. That pushing against authority, trying to get our own way, that's the flesh. We want to put that to death. It's not precious in God's sight. And the quiet spirit is the spirit that is not troubled. It's at peace. You're not worried, oh man, what's going to happen in the next election? What if this person wins? What if that person wins? What if they make this law? Oh, I'm so worried and I'm troubled in my spirit. I've got this anxiety. What time is it? I, I, I don't want to go all day, which is a tendency of mine. All right, how much time do I have? <laughs> About 10 minutes? About 15? Okay, great. So that... That peaceful spirit is a spirit that's at rest, that nobody can disturb your, your spirit because you recognize that God is in control of your life, that God is the one who has established the authorities. And so the authorities, whatever decisions they make, it doesn't bother you because even if it brings trouble into your life, you recognize that that trouble is ordained by God and it's going to accomplish God's purposes in your life. Do you view the world that way? This is a, a totally different worldview than what you get in the world. Do you really think that, that God is in control of everything and that even the bad decisions that people who are in authority in your life make are from God and for your good and that God can work in your life for good? Again, remember Jesus Christ. All of the bad decisions that affected his life and brought him to the cross, that was all part of God's plan. And as Christ submitted himself to the Father's will, as he submitted himself to the authorities, as he suffered well, he accomplished God's purpose for his life. And it's the same in your life. As you submit yourself to the authorities, as you have peace in your heart, as you don't have to push for your own way, but you have this meekness, then you are going to be a Christian. And you are going to experience God's purposes being accomplished in your life. So often we think, oh no, you've got to fight the system. You've got to push for your way if you're going to really accomplish something in the world. Is that how Christ accomplished something in the world? He didn't overturn the system. He was crushed by the system. But then he rose from the dead. Where's Pilate now? And where's Jesus Christ now? See, it's not so important who's in charge right now. It's important who's in charge then. It's not so important, is my life easy and cushy and blessed and everything that I want now? It's, is my life then? This eternal perspective. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There is a kingdom of God, and there are those who are shut out of that kingdom. There is a weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and an eternal fire. And there is a place of glory and beauty and resurrection at the right hand of God. And God is in control. That's the worldview that allows Peter to write something like this to a woman who is suffering from an abusive husband. There's a lot of women suffering with abusive husbands. And if I go out to the world and I say, well, God says, submit to your husband. The world says, boo, you get out of here. You tell a, a woman to submit to an abusive husband? What are you, some kind of monster? Well, maybe according to your worldview. But I've got a totally different worldview. I've got God on the throne. I've got the power of su righteous suffering. 
I got the power to persevere because of the resurrection, which changes everything. But the world doesn't have that. They've only got the moment. They've only got now. And if they don't get freed from oppression now, if they don't get out of that abusive relationship now, then they've got nothing. Now, you women, you haven't gotten married yet. And you are privileged to live in a society where you're going to get to choose who you marry. Choose well. Choose a wise man. Choose a godly man. Choose a man who shows love to others. You see it in his family. You see it in the way that he treats his younger brother, his younger sister. You see it in the way that he treats his mother. A man who disrespects his mother will never live well with you. You've got the privilege of choosing a godly man. But even if you choose a man who appears godly and you think is godly, and then he turns into something else, and he shows a different face after marriage, your well-being in this life is not God's primary concern. If you're stuck in a bad marriage for 40 years, I'm not saying that's not bad. I'm not saying I don't have sympathy. I'm not saying I don't want to help. I want to talk to that man. I want to rebuke him. I want to straighten him out. Society is here. We have rights and privileges, and you can take advantage of every opportunity you have. But even if you are called to suffer and there's no solution that is biblical, you're blessed. You're blessed. If you have this kind of spirit, if you have a meek and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight, now, let's get to the men. We could spend more time here on verses 1 through 6, but I, I promised we'd get to the men. So verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, here's the one place in this section where Paul, Peter, excuse me, I always say Paul, where Peter addresses the authority. Notice in the previous verses, he addressed those who were under authority, those who were under the government authority, those who were under their master's authority as slaves, those who were under the husband's authority. Now he takes one verse and addresses the authority. And he tells the authority that they're to have a similar mindset. They're supposed to live in the same kind of way as they live with their wives. The husband, the authority in the family, and that's what this this teaching in the scripture on submission is all about. It's really about authority. That they are not to use their authority for self-promotion, but they are also to live in light of the resurrection. They are also to live in the fear of God. They are also to recognize that authority is established by God, and as that authority, they are going to give an account to God for how they use that. And so this is a passage not just to husbands, but this is a passage to anyone in authority. School teachers, you're an authority. School administrators, you are an authority. The elders in the church, government leaders, all of the authority, they need to recognize what Jesus told Pilate. You would have no authority unless God gave it to you. And you will give an account to God for the authority that has been given to you. And so for those who are under your authority, you live with them in an understanding way. Now specifically in this context, the husband lives with his wife in an understanding way in light of who she is as a woman. There was a, a woman's march and a, a, a great uh, YouTube channel went out and started to interview some of the women 
in that women's march, and they were asking them, what is a woman? And they had a hard time answering that question. Well, what is a woman? Now, you know, you know what a woman is. And, and they just kind of had a feeling for what a woman is, but they couldn't define it because our culture has gone gender crazy and doesn't even really know what a woman is anymore. And they went to the, the pro-life rally and asked the women there, what is a woman? And of course they knew what a woman was. But the scripture knows that there is such a thing as a man, there is such a thing as a woman. And a woman, according to her physical birth, is identified here by the phrase, the weaker vessel. Now that might sound like an insult, but it's not intended as an insult. You have to recognize that there's a, a cultural gap, there's a linguistic gap here. And so Peter's not putting women down by saying that they are the weaker vessel. But he's saying that women are constituted differently than men. Women are more relational than men. I shouldn't have to say that, but it's, you know, one of those things that our cultures seems to be losing track of everything. And men can be more aggressive than women by nature. That men and women by nature are wired differently. And so the men don't treat the women with the kind of harshness, with the kind of rivalry, with the kind of force that men might use against other men. But men treat women with dignity and respect and honor. There's a certain way that a man treats a woman, recognizing that by birth, she is a gentler, kinder, weaker vessel. We don't dominate with force. Not only do we treat her according to her physical nature, but also according to her spiritual nature, which is as an heir with you of the grace of life. Though sufferings may fill our lives, we're confident we are heirs with Christ. The woman is an heir. You are an heir. And so there's that spiritual equality. There is a, a relationship of authority. The husband is the head over the wife. But there's also a relationship of equality as you are both equal before God as those who are children of God, who are heirs of the kingdom. So don't think that because you are an authority as a husband or in any other position of authority that that makes you better than those who are, you are in charge of. But as Jesus Christ himself laid out the example for us, he did not come to be served, but to serve. The authority is there to honor others, to respect others, to elevate others. And the authority uses that authority in love and not for self-service. She is an heir of the grace of life with you. And if you don't, if husbands choose to dominate their wives selfishly, and foolishly, then that will affect your relationship with God. Imagine this situation. You've got uh, in the army a sergeant who is mistreating those who are under him, who won't listen to any of their reasonable requests, who is bullish, who is using his authority for making his own life better and making other people miserable. And now that sergeant comes to his superior officer, the colonel, and makes some request. And the colonel says, no. I'm not going to give you what you want until you change how you're treating those who are under your authority and your command. That would be exactly the right thing for the colonel to do in that situation. And God is the superior authority over every other authority. And if you do not use the authority that God has given you well, then God will say, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm not going to be the kind of authority who gives you until you start to use your authority to serve others. 
God will do that. That's exactly right for God to do. Now, in wrapping this up here, I've got a few questions that I'd like you to take with you. Do you guys have some time later today when you can uh, discuss questions from the chapel? Great. All right, so here's, here's some things you can jot down that I'd like you to discuss in small group. Number one, how can you trust God even when boneheads are making the decisions that affect your life? How can you trust God when boneheads are making the decisions that affect your life? That's a good question. We all have boneheads who make decisions that affect our lives. How can you trust God in the midst of those circumstances? What does God want you to do? Number two, this one is particularly applicable to the young ladies, but like I said, these are, are qualities that God is looking for in every godly person. But I'm pulling them out of the first six verses here since that was the majority of our text. And you see there in the text the word adornment in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. That word adornment is from which we get our word cosmetics. And so this is how you make yourself look good. And I'm going to ask you, how do you make yourself look good to God? Remember what the scripture says. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the question is, how does your spiritual face look this morning to God? We all care about people, what they see, what they, what they see when they look at us. Well, God is looking not at your external face. He's looking at the hidden person of the heart. And when God looks at that hidden person of your heart, what does he see? Here's some things that are from the text that you could ask yourself specifically. Do you have a gentle spirit? Do you have the meekness that Jesus Christ called blessed? The meekness, gentleness. Is that a spiritual cosmetic that you've got on your, your spiritual face? Secondly, quietness. Do you have peace? Or do you have anxiety and depression? You know, the opposite of peace is anxiety. It's being troubled, stirred up, not feeling right, being nervous about the day, about the situation, about the future. Do you have quietness? Do you have that peace in your spirit? That's, that's beautiful in God's sight. Do you have hope in God? As it says there, that the holy women of old adorned themselves. Uh, they hoped in God in verse 5. Holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So hope in God. Not hope in the election, not hope in uh, getting the right person to marry me. Hope in God, what God is going to do in the resurrection and the kingdom. Fourth, submission to authority. Do you obey the authorities that are in your life from the heart? If you don't obey the authorities that are in, the, in your life from the heart for the Lord, then you are not spiritually beautiful to God. Holy conduct. You see that, that word, the holy women. Holiness is what God is looking for. Doing good. 
If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, and the last one is not frightened by fear. So those, those seven, quietness, gentleness, hoping in God, submission to authority, holy conduct, doing good, not frightened by fear, those are the spiritual cosmetics that come out of this text that make a woman beautiful in God's sight. Women, do you want to be beautiful to, in the eyes of people, or do you want to be beautiful in the eyes of God? Which one's more important to you? And what can you do to put this spiritual cosmetic on your heart? Men, these are traits that God is looking for in men as well. Doing good, not frightened by any fear. Are you fearless? Are you like Jesus Christ? Are you able to do anything that God wants you to do regardless of the consequences, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone does to you? Do you have that kind of love for God, that kind of devotion to God, that you can be fearless before mankind? God wants it in his daughters. God wants it in his sons. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word this morning. We thank you that you've brought this group together here in this place to, to receive an education in all areas, but especially in what is written in your holy word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words, that your Holy Spirit would drive them deep down into the hearts of each one of these students, that you would open up their eyes to be able to see that these are living words. And they would be able to say, like Peter, where else can we go? You have the words that bring life. And may your word bring life into us this day. Amen.